Hello and welcome to the Media and Marketing Podcast sponsored by MWW. My name is John Reynolds, the host. One housekeeping announcement. There has been a few sound issues in the last couple of podcasts, but I'm pleased to say that's been resolved now. It's my fault, so I'll take one for the team. So coming up this week, we've got Rosie Millard, ex-BBC arts correspondent, who's talking about BBC Pay and talking more broadly about arts and advertising and being a completist. We've also got James Murphy and David Golding, two of the founders of the advertising agency Adam and Eve DDB, uh, who are talking about everything from Grenfell, Brexit, sexual harassment in the ad industry and what they're up to these days. Uh, but before all that, uh, and sat opposite, uh, sat opposite me now, I'm delighted to be joined by Rob Lynham, who is the Head of Commercial Development at Mail Advertising. Uh, now, thanks a million for joining me, Rob. Usually at this point, I ask for a potted history of my uh, guests, but due to time constraints, we're going to have to go straight in, I'm afraid. So, uh, first of all, I'm just going to ask you, obviously, you had the hoo-ha about uh, Virgin Trains' decision to stop selling the Daily Mail on its West Coast service because of ca- concerns about Mail's position on issues like immigration and unemployment. Uh, obviously, it subsequently U-turned on that decision. And we also have the behaviour chase stuff too. Um, to a lot, to a lot of people, the whole thing might seem like overzealous behaviour from advertisers. But broadly speaking, has there been a tangible change from advertisers? Uh, are brands nowadays more cautious n- and nervous about where their ads are appearing in newspapers? Um, I think you've asked. Uh, well, hello, and uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks for asking me on. Um, you've asked quite a lot of questions there. Let me start with the uh, let me start with the version trains and, and paper chase issue. Um, I mean, firstly, you know, we're, it's, we're glad, we're really, we're really pleased that, that uh, Virgin uh, overturned their decision. Mm-hmm. I think it's, a, it's in, in interesting territory for, for brands when they, when, they, when they make decisions about, about withdrawing their advertising from, from newspapers over, over editorial issues mm. um, because, of the, because of all of the implications that has with, with freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is an incredibly important uh, thing that you know, un- underpins the... Um, the integrity of all, all, sure. of, all of the newspapers, and, and also wider for the implications it has for uh, for society and and uh, democracy, and it would be incredibly difficult for any newspaper to um, to start making editorial decisions based on um, the requests of individual mm-hmm. brands, advertisers, or even or, or, or even pressure groups, yeah. and um, and I think I think the, the one thing that was, was being overlooked at the time. Um, is that you know a lot of a lot of Virgin Trains customers do choose to read the mail, you know whether you agree with whether you agree with the line or not, or whether mm. or whatever the the political inclinations are of any of any individual, um, you know a lot of their customers do do choose do, do choose sure. to read it. It was interesting, you know what that what that said about their mm. about their customers, and exactly the same goes for Paper Chase, and okay. I think we saw a backlash online. Um, from, uh, from from paper chase as well, with a lot of people that didn't, a lot of their customers that didn't didn't agree with the, with their with their stance. So I think that involving brands involving themselves in the in the editorial decisions of, mm. of, of newspapers is, is is quite dangerous territory. It might you know some of their customers might agree with it, but also a lot there will be a large swathe of the customers who don't agree who don't agree with it. Okay. Um, but then when you come onto the whole issue of um, of where of, of where advertisers. Like to uh, or don't like to see their advertising ads. We have seen a a big um, a big shift in um, in in the decisions that advertisers make around where, what we call brand safety, mm. and it has a lot of implications. I think it has more implications for um, for publishers uh, on, online, and I think it's sure. an area where we're where we're seeing um, you know, and I think I think rightly we're seeing you know advertisers well, taking more concern over where their advertising has appeared and the environment that it's appearing in. Mm. Um, 
but a lot of the technology that is being applied for it now to block um, to block their advertising appearing in certain articles. What we're seeing is certainly publishers being, I think, being treated slightly more harshly than um, than than the social media platforms. Okay, so and this is right across the board. Uh, you see more caution from travel companies, retail companies, electrical companies. Uh, oh, I, I, absolutely. You know, there'll be the brands will be incredibly concerned about um, about their ads uh, about their, their, their ads appearing um, against. Uh, content to do with terrorism mm-hmm. um, or disasters yeah. um, or uh, or pornography and um, and and uh, in all, all, all kinds of other areas. You know, each each brand will, will differ on on their on their attitudes towards the kind of content that they don't want their um, their, their brand to appear, to appear against. Um, but certainly, what we're seeing is where where technology can be applied within the market. Yeah, um, it, it it does seem to me that there is a that that publishers are being treated far far more harshly than uh, than uh, than the social media platforms. Yeah, okay. And I think you know we saw last year, you know, a lot of the, the news stories that the you know that the, the Times were breaking about mm. um, about brands uh, as yeah. appearing next to um, next next to content um, or, uh, for for terrorism on you know, on the likes of YouTube. Um, it's a you know how much of that is, is, is how much of that is, is still being cleaned up or is, 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 is debatable but what we're certainly mm. seeing I think is mm. that is that there, there still isn't a level playing field with it within the market and uh, and publishers are being treated far more far more okay. harshly it's almost as though it's because technology can be applied in, in certain areas yeah sure a lot, a lot of advertising agencies are focusing on on, mm. on, on that area and still, they're blind to um, some of the the walled gardens, the, yeah. uh, the the platforms, the the social media platforms. Okay, let's let's quickly switch to the Trinity Mirror deal, which um, we've been hearing about seems for, for for months and months. But it's finally looks like it's going to finally happen this week. So this is Trinity Mirror, publisher of the the Daily Mirror, the Sunday Mirror, and the People is buying the Express, Daily Express, Sunday Express, amongst other titles. So, what's your take on that? I mean, is that it's it's been a deal that's been talked about for a for a, for a long time, hmm. um, so it's not um, so, so it's not unexpected. Um, I mean, I think when you go back to when you go back a couple of years ago and you looked at the deal that Trinity Mirror did with Local World, yeah, um, it was a very good deal for Trinity Mirror at the time. It's I think in the in the first year it um, it boosted. Trinity Mirror's profits by about twenty four percent. So you know, them looking to as their as their as their as their, as their business as their business shrinks, um, going out and acquiring um, some more scale and, a, and another profitable mm. business um, has been quite good. And it's a and it's uh, and both both businesses you know the new the, it's no secret that the newspaper um, market is is, is challenged. Mm. Um, and certainly, the traditional side of the business is in is in, lo- in long term structural decline, um, and consolidation. And I think there was an, there's been an inevitability that there is uh, that there was going to be some consolidation within the sector mm. over, over the last co- over the last couple of years. We saw Johnston Press acquiring the um, the the I newspaper um, last year, and um, and this is a deal that's been talked about for for a long time. So. It's a. It'll be interesting when it when it finally does happen. Sure. Um, you know, I've seen, we've seen the reports this morning that is due. It's, it might happen on Friday mm. this week. We'll wait. We'll wait and see. But I think that there are some other there are some other interesting questions about about you know when that deal does go through, if that mm. deal does go through. Um, is what are the implications for those uh, for, for those other titles? Because you've got a. 
you've got two effectively two publishing houses that that that, uh, that sit at sort of opposing ends of the market. Mm. So you know, editorially, what will that mean for the um, for the for the Express and, and Daily Star uh, titles? Sure. Poli- you know, sit, sitting in a, in a, in a, with a, in a publisher with a stable of titles that politically have been left leaning, yeah. to all of a sudden having a, um, a, a a portfolio of titles that are more are more right leaning. It'll be interesting to see how that changes. I think also it'll be interesting to see what happens with the um, with the Express titles, which you know a lot of people w- uh, would say have been starved of editorial investment over the last few years. Um, we'll see what happens with those if they yeah. do uh, if they do receive an injection um, of investment in the editorial pr- um, product. Whether we, you know whether we'll see fewer headlines for for, for Maddie and, and Diana and the weather <laughs> on, the, on the front page of the Express and. Sure. Uh, and whether they'll start bro- um, uh, broadening out into into other areas. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure the Trinity Mirror should be praised for actually investing in newspapers because they're one of the few publishers who are putting considerable amount of money behind newspapers. Uh, but as you say, it's early days, and we don't really know what's going to be the long-term fortunes of all the papers are going to be. So I guess it's watch this space. And while I've got you here, it'd be great to get you on the... The Guardian's obviously relaunched uh, a few weeks ago now. Um, and what's been the, the feedback you've been getting? Have you been impressed by it? Has there been a, a strong advertiser reaction? Or? It's a... I haven't... It's, 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 it's an interesting one, because when, when you had a look at... Um, if you go back about... 15 years mm. or so, you know, when, when you had the, when, when the broadsheets or some of the quality titles first started um, reformatting, you know, when the independent moved from mm. a broadsheet to a, to a, to a tabloid um, or compact and the Times and the Times followed suit and then, you know, later on the Guardian, uh, the Guardian moved to the Berliner format. Um, you know, there was a, it created a lot of enthusiasm within, within an interest and enthusiasm within the market and, and the, and the, uh, the publishers were, were, were praised for being, for, uh, for taking an innovative stance um, sure. in what is it you know what is for a long time has been a very very traditional sector um, I haven't really I haven't really heard the same sort of level of excitement um, around the around around the Guardian I mean I know it's not a new it's not a new announcement we've been expecting it for, yeah. you know, it's going it's to happen for a while um, but um, it doesn't really it hasn't it hasn't struck, struck, struck me is that it's given the Guardian a, it's given the Guardian much of a boost I mean, I think in- interestingly, I, th- I thought I thought the uh, I think the most interesting thing that's really come out of it was um, you know you've got the new uh, the new masthead for the Guardian, um, and they chose at the uh, you know the, at the the weekend to run with a with a red box across the top okay. of the paper on a on a tabloid, um, making it so I thought that, you know for the first time the Guardian has, uh, has looked like a, a red top. <laughs> uh, maybe may, maybe maybe that's where they that, that's maybe yeah. where they see their their future. Um, that is an interesting observation. I didn't. I didn't know that. Okay, and, and lastly, um, just obviously, uh, you're with the Mail now, but you were previously uh, worked. Uh, your history is with uh, uh, media agencies. Obviously, there's, there's lots of um, big pitches at the moment. Can you just give us some insight into what it's like, the atmosphere, when there is a big pitch um, up for grabs? Is, is it a bit of a madhouse? I mean, what's what's the atmosphere like? I think it really. I think it depends on it depends on what side of the pitch you're working on. If you're uh, if you're work if you're defend if you're working the agency that is defending yeah. a big piece of business, um, it's a very different atmosphere to to one where you are pitching to potentially win a new big piece of business. But just because of the the implications for it, you know, if you are if you are the incumbent agency, um, then you know there are big implications. There's not much to gain from retaining a a, a piece of business, um, uh, but it's but it's vitally important uh, because it can make up a very large share of the agency's billings and and uh, it, it can also have a large proportion of the agency's total staff work, working on it and also there's the prestige that goes with that that as well as well you know, as well as the income that delivers to the agency's bottom line 
Um, whereas if you're winning, if you're trying to win a, a new piece of business, yeah. you've got you've got nothing to lose really, yeah. but, but and but a whole lot more to gain. Sure. And um, you know, I've worked when I was working at MEC, there were a number of very big pitches that they uh, that they won. Um, you know, during that you know very successful period where they went on a number of years delivering exponential growth. And so, you know, there were some of those big pitches were were transformational for uh, mm. for, for the for the agency, and it has it had you know huge implications for. Uh, for you know, for, for for how that agency was was going to look and operate over the next over the next number number of years, both in terms of of uh, of, of the you know the num- number of staff um, and, and and resources, and and also just the, the way that the um, the way that the the, the confidence that the agency feels, um, you know, when they uh, when they when they're going to market. So, uh, but you know, pitches are the lifeblood of, yeah. of this of this industry. If you work in if you work in a media agency. You know these are the rules. They, you know, you know exactly what the rules of engagement are. Agencies are pitching constantly, and um, you know it is probably some of the most exciting time and some of the most pressured time that um, that the agencies will have. I can't but make out. I can't make out if you're pleased or not pleased to be out of it. I actually, I tell, no, I tell, I tell you what, it's the, it's, it's, it's probably, it's probably one, it's probably one of the biggest things that I that I miss. Oh really? Um, yeah, pitches are 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 are, are, mm-hmm. re- are really exciting and and. You know, and when you, and when you win, mm. it's fantastic, and when you lose, it's it's not it's not it's not great. Um, but it's a you know you you can look over the years about about the way that uh, that the the agency landscape has tra- has transformed mm. due, due 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 to pitches, um, and you know and fortunes for, fortunes change. You can look at you can look at the vitality of the you know different agency groups and different agencies. Based on their based on their, their new business performance okay. um, um, over the years, and I've worked on I've you know I've worked on both sides. I've worked in agencies when they've when they've been on a downward curve, yeah. and also upward and upward is better. Okay, right on that point, that's fantastic, and we'll have you back uh, to talk more at length. But thank you very much, Rob. That's great. And stay tuned because next up we've got James Murphy, David Golding, and then we've got Rosie Millard on the Media and Marketing Podcast. Hello and welcome to the main part of the Media and Marketing Podcast and we are delighted to be joined by James Murphy and David Golding, two of the founders of the creative agency Adam and Eve DDB, which has just celebrated its 10th birthday. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast, David and James. For our listeners, can you just give us a potted history of your careers to date? Me? Yeah, it's also much longer than mine. Uh, Right, potted history. So... um, yeah, I began, I was a grad at Ogilvy & Mather and uh, moved to Rainey Kelly when it was a startup and uh, learned a huge amount there and and ended up being managing director and then CEO when that was Rainey Kelly, Camelroth, Wynar. And um, having done sort of three or four years in charge there, then decided to do a startup and we launched Adam and Eve. Okay, David? And I started an agency that no longer exists called Bates Dorland. Um, and then went to WCRS and then joined James and Ben at Rainey Kelly and then as Ben, as James says we, we decided for reasons that I can't even remember um, to launch Adam and Eve uh, almost exactly 10 years ago. Actually I did also work at Baystool because before I was a grad at Ogilvy I was the post boy at but Baystool. he didn't deliver my post, he was... <laughs> Dave was too young for me to... Yeah, he was far post. older, he, he, he'd moved on to deliver someone else's post somewhere else. It sounds like a long-standing argument. So it was ten, the anniversary was last month, wasn't it? So we just missed it, I think, is it? No, January, so, yeah, last month, yeah, okay. so about, about a week ago. Okay, so my quickfire opener, which I've been asking all my male guests, following the FT scoop uh, about uh, the goings-on at the... F, uh, uh, the President's Club, have either of you ever been invited to or attended 
a President's Club event or a similarly un-PC men-only event? I think I can categorically say never invited, never attended, not actually been invited to that kind of event. No, never once. Okay, so let's get straight into Brexit. I saw James a few days ago at the Advertising Association Lead, Advertising Association Lead event where you're moderating a panel about what business leaders are doing to prepare for Brexit. Uh, this was your role as chairman of the Advertising Association. You said on the subject of Brexit, I uh, picked up this quote, we don't know what the impact will be because the government won't share their uh, impact statement. Lo and behold, a few days later, there was a leak of a Brexit impact assessment, which says leaving the EU will adversely hit almost every sector and every UK region. But I want to rewind a year, uh, just a around a year ago, another advertising association event, when you said, James, on the Friday afternoon of the vote, this is the independence vote, I got a phone call from a large American client cancelling a contract with the question, what the, hell you, what the hell have you guys done? The following Wednesday, a European client cancelled and you said the sentiment was that global clients remain quite brittle. Now that obviously portrays quite a damning, port uh, a damning portrait of the impact of Brexit, but do you think it's fair to say that the impact has not been as bad as you first thought? I think the, Im the impact is um, yet to come probably. You know, I mean, we haven't left yet. So uh, certainly there've been some ripples and yeah. I think that the, it's interesting because I'd, I'd say even now you can see a situation where you know, one large multinational client is looking to source a lot more in their home European market and to have our network centre much more there rather than in London. So I think there are sort of interesting currents at play, but I don't think we can really tell what, what it's going to be like until we get the shape of a deal and we get on the other side of it. And the truth is our industry is super adaptable, you know, very entrepreneurial. If any industry can roll with the punches, it will be our industry. But were you expecting there to be a major shift of talent out of the UK and clients cancelling contracts specifically of Brexit and even businesses moving out of the UK? Were you expecting that to happen or well, not? immediately? Yeah. No. Okay, right, okay. Now, um, obviously, you've, Adam and EDDB, uh, created the Advertising Association's Great Advert for Britain. Mm. Uh, was that a difficult decision, involving yourself in a, a political argument or not? Or? No, because I don't think it's, it's really a political argument. What we're saying is just you know, like many industries, we really benefit from having international talent mm. and it would be definitely preferable if we can remain open to international talent. Um, you know, the, the interesting example that we always talk about is when we, we pitched and won a major multinational food client mm. about three years ago and um, two of their key markets are centred around India and Russia and we actually had key hirings from both of those markets on the pitch team yeah. and we won the account. That actually employs about 15 full-time people. Okay. So two people coming in from outside the country, creating another 13 jobs. I don't think that's an argument that's put very much. The idea that skilled immigration can create jobs in the UK. You know, the drumbeat is all people just taking UK jobs away. Okay. So this idea of obviously you're hoping for as close to the status quo as possible in terms of freedom of movement between the EU and the UK. Do you think the likelihood is that will happen? Because the mood music would suggest that that's not going to happen. There will be some sort of bureaucracy involved in light of a harder Brexit, do you think? Well, there, is, there are definitely problems already with um, quite a lot of um, EU workers in the UK trying to attain settled status from the Home Office. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of admin hold-ups, a lot of knockbacks, that are meaning those people are having to pay for legal advice, which in many cases they can't afford. Mm. 
Uh, I think the bigger danger, though, is actually not a technical one. It's one of sentiment. We've had about four people leave in the last six months to go back to their EU home countries from mm-hmm. from this agency. And they're great people who are really valued and really skilled. And they've gone, they haven't really stormed out in a huff because of Brexit. They just feel that their futures lie elsewhere now. Okay. And there is this uh, notion that uh, cities like Berlin and Amsterdam are trying to maximise, trying to tap up, basically mm. get talent out of the UK. Is, mm. that, is that a big concern then? Or? Well, it's definitely, it's interesting to see. It's almost slightly medieval, like a battle of city-states where um, you've got people like Amsterdam with an English language website for the creative industries saying, relocate to Amsterdam, the new English-speaking hub for Europe, mm. and offering help finding private property, help finding commercial property, and for the first 30% of your salary tax-free. So there's pressure. But there's no doubt, I mean, the UK and London still represents probably the greatest concentration of Mm. technical, creative and strategic talent anywhere in the world. It's going to take a lot for Europe and a long time for Europe to match that. And places like Berlin are very creative, but they have nowhere near the critical mass. Okay. And I mean, sort of long term, you don't fear for Adam and Eve, DDB being in the UK, then you don't think there's going to be a point when it will actually move out the UK? No, and I think it's very, we've opened an office in New York in the last year that's flourishing. We may open outposts elsewhere. It's an incredibly fluid business. And um, that's one of the interesting things. You know, there are, there are interesting things with Brexit looming where we will be, we'll have opportunities to evolve and change our offer. Okay. David, I presume you share similar sentiments to you, Jim? Yeah, I mean, I, my, my point of view on this is that Adam and Eve would probably be naturally more successful in the UK if... Brexit hadn't happened, but it has happened, yeah. and we are a globally recognised agency brand, and therefore we will find new paths to grow internationally, and we've done it in America, and I think we can do it successfully in many markets. Okay, so changing tact, I just want to touch on the Grenfell Tower tragedy, which seems a bit incongruous to talk about Grenfell to, to advertising executives, but Sarah Golding, who you'll obviously know is the chair of the IPA, gave a recent speech to the advertising community when she referenced Grenfell. She said the awfulness of Grenfell Tower will bring positive action for disadvantaged communities. Do you think that was um, how awful a tragedy was? Do you think the advertising industry... Uh, missed an opportunity around that to do, I was just thinking about the possibility of doing some pro bono creative work, highlighting the plight of those who suffered in Grenfell? Well, uh, I mean, obviously Sarah Golding is someone I know better than most people, her being my, my wife, and <laughs> she was right. I mean, obviously what she was talking about with, with regards to Grenfell was the fact that policy towards social housing will change as a result, and she was talking about changes that will come with bad things. Uh, and that was the context she was talking about. That in. Should the advertising industry have done more or could it have done more? I, I, I think our overall point of view on this is that the advertising industry does an awful lot in a pro bono sense for an awful lot of charities and we as an agency do an awful lot for local community charities that we're a part of. Grenfell was one of those last year and the agency, and particularly individuals in the agency, did an awful lot to raise money for Grenfell. But we have an agency charity which is chosen by everyone at the agency and which we raised a, a, a huge amount of money for last year and it's a local charity in Paddington, it's, it, it's St Mary's uh, Children's Intensive Care Unit and so agencies all do an awful lot for charities, particularly in the local community uh, and Grenfell was something that which we all as individuals did things for and the agency did things for but within a whole world mm. of charitable giving.
Okay, um, uh, uh, change of tactic again. Another question that uh, occurs frequently on this podcast. Uh, we had Helen Kelcraft, who again, you'll, you'll obviously know, one of the founders of Lucky Generals, who I asked her about sexual harassment, and she had some really horrific stories about what she was subject to, which was a long time ago. But then she did suggest that this could be still a problem, could still be a problem in the industry today. So, have either of you experienced it first or second hand, and do you think there is a, a problem at the moment in the industry? Well, I mean, neither of us have, have experienced it first or second hand, and I don't just mean in our day-to-day careers, I also mean in our management careers and spending time managing complaints from people who've, who've suggested that it is a problem. Um, I'm sure across the industry and in certain places and across certain times, it has been a, a genuine problem and is something which obviously we have to remove and have to stamp out. One of those things where I think looking back, you asked us to sort of do a potted history of our careers mm. um, at the opening of this. And there's no doubt the industry feels very different now than it mm. did when, certainly when I joined. Um, it felt like a really macho, sort of almost willfully old school industry mm. back then. Um, and there was a lot of quite sort of chauvinistic behavior. Mm. Um, and it feels like uh, the industry has sort of organically sort of changed and moved on quite profoundly in the last 20 years or so. Um, I'm sure that that doesn't mean that there aren't problems mm. and and there will be problems but I think the I would like to think that certainly in our experience at this agency that we work in an open enough and familiar enough familial enough environment that if there were a problem people would raise it very very quickly and we do have mechanisms for them to raise any issues like this not just sexual harassment but harassment in general mm. Were those mechanisms, were they brought in in light of all the, you know, the recent controversy and the stories emanating, or I guess they've been in there a long time? They? They, they, well, not necessarily a long time, but certainly in the last couple of years, we've done a lot um, to look at um, kind of revamping things like our Dignity at Work programme, where people can report form, informally um, yeah. to peers um, or, or members of their team, or they can report formally through a formal grievance process. And those things are taken very, very seriously if they happen. And occasionally they do happen. I mean, I'm so far, it's good because anything that has arisen has often been about how could you put it, the heat and light that get generated in around subjective issues like debating work and thinking, where sometimes those debates can become very animated mm. and so on. They haven't been of a sexual harassment nature. Um, that doesn't mean that you know, we may not have to deal with cases like that. Okay, um, moving subject now, obviously there's been lots of chat in the past few years about management consultancies moving into the uh, creative area. Um, so there's been lots of chat, obviously there was the uh, Accenture by an independent a- agency, Camerara, uh, at the end of uh, 2016. Now, I was watching, I think, uh, some YouTube footage of you yesterday, David, talking about this. So, th- I mean, there's a lot of people in the advertising community who listen to this podcast, but there are other people who um, aren't au fait with what's going on. So, broadly speaking, management consultancies uh, are pitching against creative agencies for work, and there's also uh, management consultants who are looking to buy creative agencies. Is that what's going on at the moment? So that, that's sorry. That's what's yeah. Currently, the, the benefit for creative agencies is by teaming up with uh, management consultancies. They get the benefit of they're very good at handling data and with the whole customer experience. Yeah, I mean, 
I think there's going to be several models going forward. I think management consultancies will buy creative agencies, as you've seen, to create or add more creativity to what they do day to day. Yeah. Then I think that there'll be management consultancies that will partner with creative agencies where management consultancies have a gap, but they won't necessarily um, buy them. And yeah. I don't think that agency would want to be subsumed within the big world of management consultancy. And the third model is that agencies and management consultants will work very successfully as separate entities, fulfilling different roles. And I last year wrote an article about collateral and culture. Yeah. Uh, and, and I do think that the best creative agencies are those that create culture. And um, the management consultants are particularly skilled in managing audiences through a customer journey and the collateral that's necessary to do that. And, and actually those two are... are different skill sets and actually quite hard to bring together and therefore uh, from a client perspective I think there's a, a, a golden opportunity to have a creative agency we, I described it last year as a kind of culture rocket mm. that they strap onto this collateral engine in order that they can work well together but they don't necessarily fuse together as one organisation because I, I worry that creative agencies that go to work for management consultancies would eventually become um, like, culturally like them and mm. therefore won't think um, in, in terms of ideas that can really change the game. They'll just think in terms of uh, ideas that will marginally improve a customer experience. Okay. Right. I mean, okay. there, there is no doubt this industry has a profound ability to panic and talk itself down as well. Yeah. And, you know, you look at what the best creative communications agencies do, and they add, as David referred to, this kind of cultural rocket to brands yeah. that can create a multiplier far in excess of, of what um, a management consultant can provide. You know, yeah. the, the, that very, very data-driven approach um, can really help optimise marketing, yeah. but the thing that will deliver absolutely multiplier results is getting a brand noticed, having massive cut-through, and convincing the public that it, A, to remember the brand, and then to pay more for it. Okay. And so, that rule still pertains. Okay. Okay, so let's talk about what the main subject what we came on to talk about, which was the anniversary. So it's 10 years last month. I had a quick look through the showreel, showreel yesterday at Ben Priest's uh, top five ads. Do you personally have a top three of all the ads you've done over the past 10 years? Or? Uh, yeah. Uh, do you? I mean, I thought sort of Yeah. I think the one, the one for me, I mean, ben, ben picked the long wait, the John Lewis Christmas ad with mm. the little boy is, is, I think, probably his top one. And I think I can definitely see the case for that. I personally really like the one that preceded that, which was called Always a Woman, which is really yeah. our kind of opening work. And simply because it absolutely lit, lit the fire underneath that kind of John Lewis campaigning approach to, to marketing and advertising and worked brilliantly. Also, I can, it, it really reflected the truth of the brand and its audience. Uh, for me, the, the top three are the long wait. I completely concur with Ben. I think it's just a wonderful piece of of film and, and was culturally explosive and um, I wouldn't change one thing about it. Uh, m then my, my second two are, I think Shoplifters for Harvey Nichols, which won a Cannes Film mm. Grand Prix, is a masterpiece, not just because it's such a fantastic piece of creative, but it's also on such a minute budget and really shows that creative ideas don't just need huge production values. And finally, I really love um, Tiny Dancer. Yes. Um, for John Lewis Insurance because it gave John Lewis a different tone of voice and showed exactly how far you could stretch that brand. I was very taken with the Marmite one, which I forgot you did. The Marmite gene or Marmite neglect. The Marmite neglect. I yeah. forgot about that. That was yeah. a great ad. Okay, no, I think I think we've been lucky. We've had we've been really blessed to have so many talented people 
agree to work with us. And you're in that situation where you see, when you see a really, really good sort of Harvey Nichols or Marmite mm. or John Lewis piece of work, and I'm always sitting there going, God, what are we going to do next? And come what may, someone comes up with another really, really good idea. Okay. So you touched on the, the John Lewis ads, uh, and I guess for a lot of people, um, you've almost become synonymous with that brand. Has this become, I don't know, I mean, is, 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 is the burden that you always have to top last year's offering, offering at, I guess, is, is that a problem or not? Or do you not think of it, think of it that way? I think it's funny, because I, I, I know some of our competitors try and uh, probably... Uh, simplistically say oh they're a TV agency they do those big TV ads for John Lewis and fine fair enough we do and they're very good and they work really well um, but you know if I looked at our biggest client 80% of what we do for them is nothing to do with TV or even advertising it's about websites and apps and their sort of digital customer journey and I think what's interesting is that is the sort of People are too easy to try and pigeonhole agencies and, um, and what they do, mm. when actually the industry has changed profoundly behind the scenes over the last 10 years. It's one of the things that's kept it super interesting for us in the last decade. David? Uh, I, I, I've said before that, that one of the challenges in terms of making John Lewis is that it is always, it is one of the one of the very few ad campaigns that is self-referential so therefore everyone refers back to the previous one or to what they consider to be their favourite one and it's mm. again one of the few campaigns where everyone's got a different favourite and, and the parallel we always draw is it's like a Bond movie whereby you kind of need the structure of mm. how all Bond movies work you need the certain villain, you need the certain car, you need the certain kit you need the style of enemy and you just flex within that structure but every single Bond movie is written uh, according to what went before so as that, that you change according to uh, the times and you change according to the movie that went previously so I think it's important for us to understand that previous John Lewis ads set the scene for the next one mm. but we don't try and write a better ad than the next one what we try and write is an ad that go well maybe the last year we went in this direction so ne this year we'll change and go in a slightly different direction so we have it in mind when we write the ad but it, you know, we don't sit there and sort of say right you know, we have to top each other every, every year. It's good if it has a sort of plush toy at the centre of it. That's proven to be commercially effective in some parts, yeah. But do you think you'll still be making them in, in five years, ten years' time then? Or not? Uh, well, I mean, my, again, my perspective on this is that there are certain things that are increasingly traditional. We're, you're interviewing or talking to us this morning after the Super Bowl last night, and it's a bit like saying, will there be ads for the Super Bowl this time next year or ten years? And I suspect the answer is yes, there will be. And will the... Um, British audience want Christmas advertising that sets the tone for Christmas. I suspect that they probably will. Okay. So you obviously sold to Omnicom in 2012. Uh, a very simple question: What's the biggest thing you miss about being an, an independent, and what is the biggest thing that you don't miss? I mean, I, it's interesting because I, I think the, you know, this is a sort of this is something that comes up occasionally and off and again something that our competitors sort of say oh well they're no longer independent you know or even at the extremes they sold out and so on and it's because I would just say that with Adam and Eve DDB much like I think our experience at Rainy Kelly Camel of Y&R is being part of a holding company and part of a network didn't seem to make any difference at all and I think the thing is because you as long as you're good you're doing good work and the business is successful, you're independent. It's only if things aren't going well that people step in. And I don't, that's not an experience we've had to deal with. And I think it's slightly sort of cliched and a bit childish when people sort of go, oh, well, you're no longer independent. Well, 
still feels independent to us. I mean, Omnicom bought us because of what we did as an independent, and they wanted us to continue that culture and that momentum uh, within the Omnicom group. So they allowed us to continue to act as if we are an independent. And I think it's borne significant fruit. Okay. So the other thing is, well, is there's no doubt we've done our best work as an agency in the five years since we merged with DDB. We were doing good work before then, but that sort of whole narrative, that cliche that spun about you sell, you lose momentum, you lose your hunger, simply isn't true. I think what what um, becoming part of DDB allowed us was access to even more talent, even more tools, and even more territories. Okay. So, and um, just in terms of what you're, you're obviously in the office every day, but you've stepped back from day-to-day management. And I've got this new term called the David Cameron syndrome. So I keep seeing pictures of David Cameron in the media at the tennis or at Disney World. But you're not suffering from uh, the case of having to fill your time or anything like that. Then uh, I, I think that there's. There is a slight misnomer between stepping back from everyday management and stepping back from the business. Right. So we have a fantastic team of people who, who now manage the agency yeah. and manage um, the culture in the agency or the, the, the facilities or the, the, the people, etc. But instead of sort of stepping up or out, we've effectively stepped back into running accounts. So yeah. I come into the office every day and work on some of the agency's biggest accounts as, as their lead planner. And so whilst we necessarily don't run sure. the show, we're certainly key members of the orchestra yeah. still, if that's... Yeah. And I think that's simply, that's what we wanted, is we enjoy being practitioners, and uh, the evolution of this business has allowed us to go back to being practitioners. Okay. And you don't have any ambitions further down the road to set up another agency and, and sell it, or is that... Is you, still entrepreneurial in that respect or not? Or? Well, I think the, I mean, I think the entrepreneurial bug is being um, kind of <laughs> fed here enough enough as it is. I mean, it, as, a, as I said, what's, what's so interesting, I think, about the last 10 years, but equally the time we live at the moment, is the amount of change and the, and the impetus to evolve and offer different things and almost work out the thing that we've always done really well which is sort of strategic thinking and creative thinking but through such a complex web of channels now Mm. that it's endlessly challenging and stimulating there are still brilliant puzzles to solve and I think that's the that's the itch that we're still able to scratch right okay David James thank you very much that's great thank you okay now welcome to the next part of the podcast and i'm delighted to be joined by rosie millard who is the deputy ceo of the creative industries federation she's also the new chair of children in need and a former bbc arts correspondent so thanks a million for joining us on the podcast rosie for our listeners can you just give us a a brief potted history of your career to date well i trained as a journalist and reporter I worked in arts journalism for most of my life. As you said, I was the BBC's arts correspondent for a thrilling decade, which was the decade of the YBAs, Young British Artists, and the advent of the lottery. So uh, under my watch, I covered things like Damien Hirst, Tracy Emin's Bed, and the opening of Tate Modern. Um, I've also been a arts editor and a feature writer and a columnist. 
and um, and I'm just about to step down as chair of Hull City of Culture, which brought many of my passions, uh, one of which is the city of Hull, uh, one of which is culture, together under one roof and um, together with an amazing team and quite a lot of money, both mm. private and public, we helped to transform um, the whole city of Hull. Okay, uh, and, and Taboo, I also looked at your Twitter feed yesterday, I noticed you did a, a half marathon, which is I think it's like the fourth or fifth one, and you coming to do a, a marathon soon too oh it's my that's about my 40th oh, half sorry <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm i'm just gearing up for the tokyo marathon yeah. i am running all the marathon majors which is like a grand slam of marathons and there's a sort of thing if you're a completist which i've realized i am okay. um, you want to do them all um so that is london berlin New York, Boston, Chicago, yeah. all of which I've done, and the final one is Tokyo. And when you do all six of them, you get an enormous medal, which I'm going to wear forever. Oh okay, right. And what, what quickly, what time did you do yesterday in the half marathon? Do you remember? 1.51. Oh, that's very good. Anything under two hours is good. Okay, now let's get straight into the, the BBC gender pay controversy, because I'm sure our listeners will be really interested in what you've got to say, obviously being a former BBC correspondent. Now, a few days ago, obviously, Carrie Gracie... BBC's former China editor, amongst others, was being grilled by uh, MPs. Now, I know you don't, you've told me you don't want to discuss your own pay at the BBC, but firstly, do you have, do you have empathy with Carrie Gracie and those other BBC news journalists who are angry about the gender pay gap at the BBC? I do have empathy with Carrie Gracie because I think transparency is critical, and I think that if you um, if there's a notion of, of, of deals done by agents and, mm. um, and other sources, people coming in on different levels, no one ever quite knows, that, um, that gives rise to conspiracy theories. And uh, yeah, they, they, they were there swirling around when I was at the BBC, which was a long time ago. Um, I, and I think also uh, it's, it's now gone into the sort of, is it harder to work in China than in America, which is not really very useful, I, mm. I feel. Um, I think that uh, it's great working at the BBC, you're paid very well um, and I think that uh, really the, the BBC, like many, many public bodies and private bodies, are going to have to look to see the, to, to, at their pay structures and I suspect that everyone is going to have to take a step back and um, probably take a pay cut. Oh really, was it, can I, during your tenure, was um, the gender pay gap, was that ever an issue for you or was it something you were aware of or not? It's quite an unusual thing isn't it really? It was a sort of unspoken issue. Okay. I think it's fair to say. Right, okay. I mean, I guess, um, I mean, there is a lot of sympathy um, for the BBC journalists. I guess uh, from others from outside, um, may think, um, which is summed up by, some people may think, which is summed up by a tweet by a journalist, Martin Dobney, who I read. Who, who said, the amazing th thing for me about Carrie Gracie debacle isn't that she was getting paid less than men, but that anybody, man or woman, would get paid 180,000 of licensed payers' money to occasionally talk about China on the telly. I mean, the backdrop to this is... Well, that is, a, that, that is very disparaging. But I mean, that is very... Um, you know, that, that, that is a bad yeah. way to, to yeah. look at Carrie Gracie's job. She worked in a dangerous and secretive sure. environment. She's very, very skilled. She's fluent mm. in Mandarin. Um, you know, I mean, the thing is that when I was well paid at the BBC mm. and I had a lovely job, I was an mm. arts correspondent. What a great gig it was, and and it was a real laugh. And you when you went around Britain looking and reporting and talking to people who devoted their life to art and culture, and and it was absolutely fascinating and a privilege. Um, so. 
frankly, you know, I, I thought I was very well remunerated. Okay. And do you think in the long term, do you think parity will be reached at the BBC? Do you think we'll get to a stage where men and women are paid similar levels for, for, for similar type jobs or not? Yes, I do. And I think that if you actually take all the figures and look at them carefully, you'll, you'll find that there probably is more or less parity anyway. Um, and I think the BBC, you know, the BBC is always the first to be accused of mm. this and that. It has to answer to so many different um, areas, so many different um, um, sort of, well, politicians. It has the press always on its back. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's in a very difficult position. And I think that they're doing their best, the I, management, to I, try and get out of this. Uh, with a, with a, with an outcome which is good for everyone. Uh, final question on this. I, I mean, you alluded to that. Are you surprised that this gender pay gap's not been an issue for other journalists? It's not really come out of Sky or Channel Four. They've not really spoken about it. It's all been restricted to the BBC. Is that because everyone's focus is, is is on the BBC? Cause it's such a big institution. Do you think? Or it, well, it's because the BBC is paid for by yeah, the okay. general public, yeah, and okay. Sky is not, yeah. and Channel Four, uh, you know, is is for. Is, is furnished, the programmes are mm. delivered by a series of independent producers and what their pay structure is might be quite interesting to scope but because yeah. they're not part of the public realm yeah. uh, as the BBC is then they are not um, they're not they're not bound to have such scrutiny. The BBC is under scrutiny of everything all the time and, uh, and that's a very very hard place to, to be in and I think it manages pretty well. Okay so now changing tact congratulations on your recent OBE. Oh thank you. Fantastic. <laughs> thank uh, you. This was awarded for recognition of your part in the as chair of leadership of Hull being the city of culture. Yeah I mean I, 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 it's, it is a real honour but it is it is an honour which which I, I'm accepting on behalf of the city. I mean the city came together in quite an amazing way to to transform itself and and to delight in in being Hull. It's a city that has been ignored and overlooked for many, many mm. years. And it is a city without uh, an enormous amount of privileges. It, it is a low-wage income city, ostensibly, and... Um, you know, there isn't, there hasn't been much attention and fuss made of it, and there's been a lot of attention and fuss made of it this last year, 2017, and it has revelled in it, and it's been a complete joy to take part in it and an honour. Yeah, some of the quotes I'm reading here, it's been described as a rip-roaring, awe-inspiring success by Arts Council England, um, and civic leaders have promised to build on its legacy in 2018. How do you gauge its success? I mean, has there been a, an economic boom in Hull? What would be the legacy? You gauge its success by lots of different evaluations. You know how many visitors were there, how many visitors were there from people in the city who who yeah. never really sort of well who, who who many of whom didn't sort of realise what what glories lay within it. Um, you gauge it by press, by publicity, by um, income, by investment, and by engagement you know all every single one of the 55,000 children and young people in Hull took part everyone um, uh, and uh, we had 90% engagement right across the city Hull is not a conventional art city it's really a mm. sporty city with two rugby teams and a, and a football team um, and an ice hockey team and uh, and so to, to, to have it suddenly become a city of culture was a thing of great excitement and thrilling really for for everyone was there any particular highlight at all or of all the events or 
too many Gosh, to mention? There were, there were a lot of highlights. I mean, the Radio 1 big weekend coming okay. to Hull was a real highlight. All these great stars and, and global icons such as Katy Perry, Kings of Leon, all arriving in Hull and just celebrating Hull with thousands of young people who were there free of charge. The Royal Ballet came up to Hull to mm. reopen the new theatre. The, the um, director of the Royal Ballet, Kevin O'Hare, is from Hull himself. And it was just wonderful to see him step out on stage at the new theatre in front of hundreds of children who love ballet and okay. just say, it's great to be home. And that was a very, very powerful moment for young people in Hull to see that someone from their city had reached such a prominent and preeminent place in, in the arts to be director of the Royal Ballet and to have the Royal Ballet coming and dancing in Hull with many members of the ballet who are from Hull themselves. That was a great moment. Just to point out to the listeners, you do have links to Hull and you were at yeah, university. Yeah, I was at university there, yeah. I, I studied English and drama there a million years ago and I've always championed the city and I, I've always loved it. Okay, so you're stepping down from that role in March. You're in sort of the legacy phase. Yeah, that, that's yeah, now. And yeah absolutely, yes. And you're doing, at the moment, or, or your latest, you're now chair of BBC Children in Need. I am. Uh, okay. And, and, I, and I'm a trustee of, I've just become a trustee of Opera North, so I'm keeping my links with with culture, which emanates from Yorkshire, although Opera North is a is a national company based in Leeds with a, with a remit to serve the north of England okay. uh, in opera. So just on the BBC Children in Need, what can you talk a bit about what the, I know this is a new role, what are the challenges involved? I think last year raised more than 50 million on night for the first time. So at a simplistic level, is it just about raising more money than last year or, or is it more to Well, I think Children in Need, we always want to raise a lot of money. The, last year we raised 65 million okay. totally. Um, and I think that yeah, it is a fantastic charity. Uh, it is an incredible honour to be chair of it. My job is to um, oversee the, the really the, the grant giving that, that we do, and um, and to to make sure that it is going to the right places. To make sure that it it really does help children uh, in need across the country. I mean, it says it on the tin, and to to cherish and celebrate the brand it's the third most known charity brand most recognizable charity brand um in the country pudsy bear is a loved mm. icon and uh, i can't wait to work with him okay it seems a balance i noticed that um obviously you have fundraising on the night from the public you also get fundraising from uh, commercial partners too uh, i think i noticed some figures that you're looking I think between 2018 and 2020, you're looking to raise um, funding from partners from 13 million to 18 million. I think you've got people like Boots on board. But I guess it, that just indicates, does it, that more and more brands want to get involved in, in, in children in need? Well, I think that, you know, we, we have some wonderful partners. Boots, mm. uh, as you said, is one. Greg's is one. Okay. Asda is one. Um, they, they, they sell the Pudsy branded gear, Pudsy onesies and ears and... Um, Greg sells pudsy uh, buns and things mm -hmm. and um, and it's a very very happy partnership and it makes sure that uh, children need can be accessed on the high street and people who want to give to it can do so by going to these places and, and buying the, the, the children need stuff Okay, so these are obviously, you're obviously very busy with all these various roles. Obviously your main role is where we are today and you're Deputy CEO of the Creative Industries Federation. I mean, there are a lot of people on this podcast 
who will know what the Creative Industries Federation does. But for those who don't, can you just give us a sort of brief overview yeah. of what it does and what your role involves then? Well, it's an independent uh, federation of uh, arts and creative industries bodies. Uh, its role is to champion the creative industries and it's the only one uh, association which features all the creative industries so from creative tech to film to theatre to museums uh, literature uh, advertising media and uh, and so you know it can advocate the power of this economic force which is worth now something like 92 billion pounds and uh, and is a very a vital part of British soft power and as we go forward into a sort of slightly uncertain future to, to, to put it mildly I think the soft power that Britain can wield is critical and the Creative Industries Federation has a very important part to play in pushing forward and, and making a song and dance about that soft power. You mentioned there an uncertain future. Um, is it fair to say that the current Prime Minister is more of a friend to the creative industries than the, or maybe this is before your time, more than David Cameron? I saw, I think I saw some figures by, um, where was it? I, th- I think I saw some stats which showed that she, the indication that she favoured the creative industries compared to David Cameron. I don't know, is that, is that something or? Well, I mean, uh, uh, you know, speaking as someone who was um, looking after the budget for Hull, mm. uh, which which was brought together uh, in, in the Cameron administration, actually, you know, David Cameron and, and George Osborne were were pretty generous to to well th- that certainly to to City of Culture, um, and I think that uh, you know I think that. Any Prime Minister is going to be looking to see what the economic drivers of the country are, finance, mm. um, you know, automotive industry, heavy industry, and it's just very, very important for us to make sure that the creative industries are sitting around the table and are being counted, mm. and, I, and I think that um, this government is, is, uh, has acknowledged that. Okay, I mean, let's touch on Brexit briefly. I think from my understanding, uh, for the creative industries, obviously there's a large amount of EU nationals who work in the UK and help the creative industries. So presumably, in terms of freedom of movement between the EU and UK, you're looking for a continuation Absolutely. as close to the state as quite, yeah. Totally. I mean, we are very worried. We had a, our global talent report, uh, which came out about um, three months ago, suggested that a lot of companies, a lot of creative industry companies, are thinking of moving, uh, moving to Europe. Uh, a lot of uh, individuals who are EU nationals have already left. We are advocating um, continuation of freedom of movement mm. to really make a special case, as it were, for the creative industries because. Creative industries depends a lot on freelance mm. uh, people, and it also depends a lot on 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 very quick um, turnarounds. You know, if somebody needs something in animation quickly, and they know the only expert lives in Barcelona or or Paris. You know, they want to get them on the next train or up there the next week, and you know, to 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 go through tiresome, expensive, and very long. Uh, Mm. gestationally uh, visas is going to have a massive knock-on effect we have discovered on the creative industries so we're very anxious about it. Do you think that will happen? I mean all the mood music would suggest that there, um, if there is some uh, there's likely to be some sort of hard Brexit and there will be some sort of curtailment on freedom of movement though isn't there I think? I think every I think many many industries across the country are going to be saying well look at us 
what about us we need a special case we need a special case and mm. you know I think our voice will be one of many clamouring for um, well uh, you know a, a particular arrangement to be mm. made okay uh, and, and finally just I mean what else is on in your inbox in terms of this role for 2018 is there anything else particularly you're looking out for or something we are totally refreshing the creative industries website I'm looking at the comms we do we want more people to know about us we want more people to join yeah um, because our strength is in our numbers and uh, we, we're hoping to really engage with students with sort of long, young millennials who I think kind of you know it's a, it's quite a daunting world out there and if you're freelance and, and working on a sort of umbrella career that is a portfolio career that now we're told that young people have to have I think we've got a very interesting and profound role in, in guiding young people we've got a creative careers campaign starting which is going to really kind of reassure parents and students secondary school students that if you take creative subjects at school that is not a hiding to nothing or years of unemployment actually you can have a a, a, a sustainable lucrative and fascinating career in the cre- creative industries we want to get that message across when does that campaign start then is that already started or well we're just scoping okay. um, with it uh, at the moment we are we are it'll probably start later on in the year but um it's going to be big Okay. Right. Fantastic. Thank, Thank you very you. much for joining oh, me, Rosie. Pleasure. What a whistle stop! <laughs> <laughs> it was a roller coaster ride. This. Okay. Thank you very much. That's great.